Okay, we are going to begin the uh, the final day of the Lord's of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day fifty two. Let's stand for the reading of the word, remembering that what you hear is the actual word of God given to you in English, so that you can understand it, learn it, and obey it. Let's hear the Word of God from Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. And then from the writer of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I want to add one, two passages from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And with that, we end the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. May those who have ears hear what God says to his church. You may be seated and let's pray. To come to you in prayer, O Lord, as we think about prayer is most appropriate. For you are the God who loves to hear and answer your people. You're the God who has provided for us a word about praying. You are the God who has sent your Son in order that we may be able to pray, and sent your Holy Spirit who is within us as a prayer for us. Our prayer is that as we look at your Word, as we think about the Catechism, as we ponder the truths that are there, that you indeed may guide and direct us, that you may indeed inspire us by your spirit working within us. You may illumine our hearts and minds to it. And we may so fall in love with what you have to say that it will live with us forever and be a directive to us for your sake and for your glory. For we offer all of our prayers and to that end that you would be glorified above all else. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, no, 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 no. There's an explanation, Mark. All of God's people said, Amen. thank you. If you have a cell phone and it is still on or the sound is still on, turn it off. We do not want buzzers going while we're doing it. We are on the last Sunday, or as a famous baseball announcer says, we are rounding third, heading home 
And what I like to add, the ball is still rolling in the outfield. So we're going to make it safely. No problem. Day 52. Lord's Day 52. Where we look at the sixth petition. I remember, I will remind you that we are talking about a prayer, the kingdom prayer that Jesus gave to us that has a progression. It begins with praise. Praise for the Father that leads us to ask that his kingdom would progress and that he would indeed do that by his providence as he provides for us in every way in order that we may also not only be pardoned but pardon others. And here we find the final aspect of that is that he would protect us as that is going on. That's the kind of movement of this prayer. Lord's Day 52 says this, what is the sixth petition? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and besides our deadly enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh assail us without ceasing, be pleased to preserve and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may make firm stand against them and not be overcome in this spiritual warfare until finally complete victory is ours. Do not lead us into temptation. That's a word that has caused a wide variety of, of issues in this prayer. How is God ever going to be someone who would lead us into temptation? When I just read from James 1, do not say that God is tempting you. And so we take a look and think, well, hold it. James is talking this way. John, Jesus is talking this way. Who's right? Well, they're both right. Why? It depends upon the focus of that word. It's the same word, but it has two focuses. It's one of the reasons I, I read James from chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, as well as 13 to 15. Because he uses that same word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's the same word as temptations. And it is a word which means trial, testing, proving. You know, when they, when they make automobiles, they take them out on the temptation track. No, the trial track. The proving track. They want to make sure this baby really runs. And you heard the sad news? GM is thinking of stopping making the Camaro. That ruined my week. This old man wants a Camaro. <laughs> a really big Camaro. <laughs> but it's gone. But they take it out and they test it. They make sure it works. And that's basically what James and Jesus are saying, count it all joy when you face various testings, when you are being proved for your faith. It is a word that is used in a negative sense in that second passage of temptation, that being, being enticed to sin. And you notice how he says we are enticed to sin. It's internal. Is within us, which really mirrors what the confession, the catechism is saying, and as we'll take a look at it. But the positive thing is, these testings are the way in which God strengthens us. What he says. So we take a look at the question what's the purpose of trials? Why does God bring them into our life? And I've listed several of them in there. One that you may know yourself better, especially your personal weaknesses so that you can guard against them and do not succumb to their trials. Think about Peter. Lord, I'll stand with you no matter what. All of these may fall away, but I'm with you. And then three times. Three times he denies them. To teenage girls 
who have no power over him, who have not said nothing other than, Aren't, weren't you with that Galilean? And that was trial. He didn't know how weak he really was. He thought he was strong. But you get to know yourself. And I'm sure that sat with him the rest of his life. And when he talked about it in 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's, in, he's, he's envisioning that night around the charcoal fire when a fiery trial came to him and he gave in. And he's now saying to his people, don't let it happen. Know who you are. And trials have a way of doing that. God uses them to test and purify our faith and obedience quotient. That's what James was saying in the second when he says, consider it all joy when you face various trials or trials of a various kind. What do they do? They help you to be steadfast. They help you to stand strong. He uses them to test us. One of my favorite illustrations is Abraham. He gets awakened in the night and God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love. Four times he says to him that. Or four times he, he, noticed, he, he points to Abraham. I'm not talking about the other son. I'm talking about Isaac, on whom all the promises of mine are vetted. Take him and sacrifice him. And what does Abraham do? He got up early in the morning. When it says early in the morning, that's not 7 o'clock. I think he got up about 4 o'clock in the morning and goes, we got to go. We got to get this over with. If I got to do this, I'm going to do it. Before I have an opportunity to punt, before I have an opportunity to drop the ball or go and second guess what I'm going to do, but God tested and purified him. So when he was ready to plunge the knife, there's a ram in the bush ready for to be sacrificed instead of, in substitution of, his son, his only son, Isaac, the one you love. Or, as uh, Matthew Henry says, testing as a means of softening a hard, hardening heart. Paul had a special revelation. He saw the third heaven. You know what that can do to you? If, ha if that happened today, you know what would happen? They would be on TV. They would have written a book. They would be speaking in conferences, grabbing thousands of dollars for every time they spoke. What did God do with Paul? Because he could have had a hard, hardening heart on it and saying, wow, what a good boy am I. I am special. I got to see the third heaven. Now he gave him the thorn in the flesh. And he said, my grace is more than sufficient for you. It is not that you saw the third heaven. It is that I have been gracious to you. To even give you a view of it. But I have been gracious to you in all of your life. And Matthew Henry's right. It softened a hard, hardening heart. If you've ever gone through a trial, especially for your faith, what it does to you is it says, it can, kind of like a, remember your, well, I don't know what your mother did, my mother did. Annie, you did that. Pointing the finger. And if it was really bad, it was right in the chest. You did that. And that's exactly what a trial is like. And it's meant to make you quiver and fall down. Or third, fourthly, in the age of adversity and being disenfranchised, trials show that we are living as light to the world. Uh, think about Daniel, who had this terrific prayer life. Every day he was praying. Everybody knew he was praying. They knew at what time he was praying. And they set, and those, those who were jealous of him set up a trap in order to get rid of him. 
And yet he says, I will pray. I'm not going to stop praying. And because of that, he got thrown in with the lions. Hungry, growling, prowling lions. And what happens? All of a sudden they lost their appetite. They're not hungry at all. Until he gets out and the others get thrown in. And then it's, oh, feast! The grand feast. That's what takes place. It's to know God's grace and power to save. Even within our weakness. In, in trials we see how profound, powerful, precious, and pure God is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down. Thrown into a fiery furnace, heated seven times, so that those who throw the, threw them in were burnt. Now that's hot. And yet there they are walking around with a fourth one. Nothing singed, not even the smell of smoke. We're going to do some traveling. We're, you know, families getting together up in that state up north. One of the things we like to do is have adult therapy around the fireplace. And we build this fire. And some don't like it because when we come in, we smell like smoke. And that's not only from the fire. We just, it's horrible. These people didn't even have that smell when they came out. Their God saved them. They knew the grace and power of their God. Kind of like when you take your driver's test, you read the book, you've driven on the road, but there's somebody who has to come and say whether you've done it right or not and finally pass on you. That's what trials are. That's what's testing you. Uh, because we have hard cores and we need to deal with them. Therefore, the Lord said, lead us. Now, that word lead can be misunderstood. It can, are you going to take us into temptation? What it really means, and it's in a form that says, do not be carried into trials. There was a man who was fishing this week in one of the ponds and his hook is, yeah, his, he got hooked on a tree and he decided to go in and try to fix, fix it, get it. He walked into the water. It sucked him down in. Two hours later, they found his body. That's the sense of the word lead. It's a word that says you can get sucked in. And so when Jesus says, do not lead us, he's saying, don't get sucked into the trials. Don't get pulled in. Spare us from unneeded trials and situations. But the trials and situations you have for us, give to us. It's like the life of Joseph. Joseph of Jacob, of Isaac, of Abraham. Joseph who had those two big dreams and he got sucked into telling his parents about it and his brothers. And what was their reaction? Who are you? Who are you to say that we're going to bow down to you? You're the second youngest brother. You are so low on the totem pole. You're underground. That's how low you are. Who are you? And then they sell him. And then he's bought. And Potiphar's wife had, brings a false accusation against him. And then he's put in prison. And he dreams and he answers the dreams of two people there. And he says, when you come before Pharaoh, tell him about me. And the guy forgets. And then he comes to Pharaoh and he answers his dream. And he becomes the top, second top person in the kingdom. You imagine one day you're sitting in prison 
you're in your dirty, filthy, in, with nothing to look forward to. And next day, you are riding in the second best chariot of Egypt. What do you think that does to most people's hearts? Whew, man, what a good person am I. I must have done something right. We could sing the song from Sound of Music. When I was young, I must have done something right to get somebody like you, right? No. He could have got sucked into that. But he didn't. And when his brothers come, and after they bury their father, and they come back, and he says, and they concoct the story about, well, before your father died, he told us to tell you that you were not supposed to harm us because of what we've done. And he says, who am I? Didn't God orchestrate this? Isn't this part of his providence in order to save not only Egypt, but my family? He did not get sucked into all the opportunities he had to sin. And that is what that word lead us not. Don't let us get sucked in to trials and temptations that are not from you. If they're from you, fine, dandy. Because that's part of your providence, which we prayed for a little bit earlier. It says, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. We've already prayed that. Let it lead us not into temptation. And then the catechism tells us why we ought to do that. It first of all says, we are absolutely weak. That's us. We think we're strong. We can stand. I can make it. I can do it my way. I can cope. I have all the energy and want. And sometimes we use, even use that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is not what it is meant to say, what we usually say. This is how we are. We sweat. When it gets 90 degrees, we're absolutely devastated. I mean, we're looking for winter, please. When we face trials, we realize how poor we really are. And then the catechism says, we are hemmed in. That is, there's nothing we can do about it. We are hemmed in by ourself. So it talks about how we are weak, that we are tempted, that we have, as 1 John 2 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides for us. We have a sin-filled, sinful nature that is so easily enticed. Madison Avenue knows this real well. Advertising just sucks you in to say, I gotta have it. I mean, we have full channels on cable that do nothing else that entice you to buy something probably you don't need, you don't really want, but it looks real good, and you may even be able to get it cheaper or a better quality somewhere else. And we fall for it. The reason we fall for it, we know we fall for it, is those channels keep, keep showing these things. And they keep coming back. That's who we are. And we're hemmed in by ourselves. We are hemmed in by society. Do not be conformed, hemmed in, by this world. By the culture around us. By 
political stances, by work, by whatever the world says is important. Don't get conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, is the way Paul put it. We get shaped by it. Why do you drive the car you drive? Because I don't have much money. Because I want to look good when I drive. Why do I want a Camaro? I don't need a Camaro. I can barely fit my golf clubs in the back of a Camaro. <laughs> Why would I want a Camaro? But boy, it looks good. And it sounds good. And when it's a dark blue Camaro flying up I-75 to that state up north and the top down and my baseball cap on, man, I am so good. <laughs> yeah, the hat will fly off, the tire will blow out, whatever. <laughs> but you see, we got conformed to the culture. Why do we dress the way we dress? I almost came in shorts and a, uh, and a shirt and a sports shirt today. See, in my culture, you wear at least a suit coat or a sport coat. I have my, well, it's a gift to me, so I can't say I bought it, but very expensive suit on, because that's what you do when you're a preacher. That's part of the enculturation and the shaping of that. And then you also have hemmed in by Satan. You may notice when I read verse 13 of Matthew 6, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then I added, or the evil one. Because the word can be translated either way. If it's translated as a neuter, it's evil. Evil as a whole. If it's translated as a... Uh, personal pronoun or as a masculine it talks about the evil one and so that prayer has that possibility of of either way and we have before us one who is our enemy and who loves to be our enemy so we talk about as paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the Authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or as Peter would say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We like to watch uh, nature shows, and sometimes they show lions prowling around. What I really like is it's the lionesses who do the hunting. And it's only the lions who yell or growl in order to scare the prey. But it's the women who do the hunting. The guys get to stand at home. Isn't that fun? Oh, I see you're not picking up on that one, are you? <laughs> but that's what, and then you watch them, how they kill and how they eat. We are so protected in our culture from those kind of horrors. But out there, especially when they wrote the scriptures or anywhere else, they're just, they, they see it all the time. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And he is our great enemy. And he hems us in. Well, as J.I. Packer once put it, life is a spiritual minefield. Life is a spiritual minefield. You never know the next step you're going to take, whether it's going to blow up on you. And that's what we are called to watch out. And we live in enemy territory. We live in a place where the enemy has set those minds and has set them very clearly and very precisely. And he does it for each one of us. We all know our weak areas. We should know our weak areas. We should know those areas in which we are more prone to fall than other areas. And what the devil does is he sets up 
those minefields where we are most prone to wander and they go off in our face and all of a sudden he has us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, it's always the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He is constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You do not have the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold on Jesus. And all these are thoughts about self, and we will never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but Christ is everything. And this is what hems us in. Every day, you're going this. And every day, these can carry us into sin or sinfulness. They just will take us. Well, I have 15 minutes. I could stop now and then you all would be depressed for the rest of the day. <laughs> is this the best it is? No. Well, that's not where the catechism stops. The catechism goes on and talks about our hope. That we want the power of the Holy Spirit to preserve and strengthen us. Though we are hemmed in, there is one who is stronger than us and our enemies and who will help us. And so the prayer says, deliver us, rescue. It's kind of like those EMS workers when that fisherman fell into the lake. They spent two hours in the dark underneath the water swimming through trees and all the debris that was down there, part of what sucked the guy in, looking for the body, looking for the person. For the first 10 minutes, they probably had some hope, boy, we could rescue this guy. But after two hours, there was nothing that they could do, and they simply brought up that dead body. They really wanted to have him rescued, to have him delivered. Our hope is... That though we are like this, we have a stronger power within us that helps us. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. We have Christ within us. As Paul says to the Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He has also given to us a better path out of being hemmed in. He's given us his word. He's given us prayer. He has given us the idea of watching and praying. Mark 13, Jesus says to his disciples, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Did you hear that refrain? Four times. He says, stay awake. Yeah, thank you. He says, stay awake. That is the key phrase for a pastor preaching. Stay awake. All of life is meant to help us stay awake. You have the word. You know, sin will either drive you to the word or will drive you away from the word. Culture, society will either drive you to the word or away from the word. Satan will either drive you to the Word or away from the Word. The path in which you take is to get back in the Word and learn what it says. Hide it in your heart. 
let you let your mind and your soul know what it is teaching you. Why do you think we go to such an extent to teach disciples of Christ? Because you have to know what the scripture says. Pray. Watch and pray is how Jesus said to his disciples. Imagine this. They've just had a great meal and they're coming out and he's going to the garden. It's late, I know, and it's been hot and they have all this good meal within them. But he says, stay here, watch and pray. And he goes away for an hour. And he's out there praying, drops of sweat and blood coming from him. And he walks back and what does he find? This, especially Peter who said, I'll be with you. <laughs> Could you not stay awake one hour? He does that two, two more times. And both times he comes back. All 11 of them couldn't stay awake. Why? Because they didn't pray. Watch and pray, he tells them. And they couldn't watch because they couldn't pray. You know, the enemy is not too concerned about the work of the church. Unless that work is covered by prayer. You can have, you know, I know churches have great ministries, wonderful opportunities, great things, but you rarely hear about prayer and you rarely see them praying together. Why? The enemy's not concerned. He, he's got better, better positions. He's got better things that he can do. He, he's not worried about worship that is prayerless and, and study that is prayerless. But when people of God start praying, that's when things begin to happen. And they have the power and the path that God is giving to them. And finally, they have victory. Or I should put Big V. Winston Churchill used to walk around this way. Richard Nixon, who tried to do it this way. <laughs> didn't have the, the energy that Churchill had. But you already have the victory. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct your way and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another for all as we do for you so that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or the way that Paul ends one of his first letters. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Surely. We're, we're trying to train our grandchildren how to ask for things. And so we're at the table and they say, can I have the butter? I said, yes, yeah, certainly you can have the butter. It's very possible for you can have the butter. Am I going to give you the butter? No. You haven't asked for it. Oh, may I have the butter? Well, that's a little bit better. I want the butter. Got it. You got the victory, I'll give you the butter. By then, your corn, your corn on the cob's cold anyway. Won't help. <laughs> we already have the victory. He says he's already working the victory within us. And that's who we are. That's what he has given to us. And so though we, turn, we start this way, and we have hemmed in this way, he has given us ways in which we can get out. Now notice also, again the pronouns that Jesus uses. Us. It's not simply because this is a corporate prayer that you offer 
on uh, Sunday morning as a ritual. It is because he's telling us to pray this not only for ourselves, but for each other. Do you have a list of the people who come that you know that come to this congregation? Maybe you, you're smarter than I am and you have it up here in your head. But when you pray, do you pray through that list for each one of them as best you know how? And do you pray for them, Lord, with John, lead him to overcome false trials and rescue him from the enemy that he has? That's what Jesus is telling us. You do it for each individual you know. Now I understand why it took Martin Luther four hours to pray in the morning. If you had a list of that, like that, it would take you for, or not forever, but it would take you a long time to go through that list. And we think, 10 minutes and I'm done. Ooh, woohoo, got it. Now you haven't even started in 10 minutes. And so we, we give it such a small amount of time for prayer and for prayer for one another when we are called to give such a great amount of time for it. Someone has said the greatest enemies to this generation, the smartphone, the computer, the tablet, and the TV. Because they direct our attention away from what we really ought to be doing. Oh man, I went from teaching to meddling. Okay. <sighs> Won't be the first time. So, then how do we close the kingdom prayer? We close it by saying, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is all that we ask of you because of, as our king having power over all things, you are willing and able to give us all good and that thereby not we but our your holy name may be glorified. I know if you look in your Bible, especially ESV, it is not in the text. It is in a footnote. That's because it is not in the major uh, manuscripts that we have. But by the end of the first century into the second century, it was already a common practice to be saying it. And it, it, it become just such a part of the prayer and of the church that we added in and we take a look at it, even though it may not be the exact inspired word of God. But it begins with that letter, that word for, which means this is the result of it. This is the reason we are praying. That God's kingdom and power and glory might be exalted above all, all else. And what does this mean? Well, it reminds us where our reliance is set up upon. It's set upon his kingdom, his power, his being. Not who we are. Not even our prayers. That quote I gave you from, from Spurgeon went on to talk about it's not even our faith. It's not our joy. It's not what we do. But everything depends upon Christ and Christ alone. And so our, even our understanding of our assurance of salvation is not because we do good things or we read the word or we pray or we go to church or all of that. It is simply because of Christ and him alone. Because we rely upon that kingdom. Peter, the second, in the second letter, says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You look at this drawing and say, He knows how to rescue us in here. And he knows how he's going to deal with that out there. And he's already in the process of doing it. Last night we were at the fireworks and a couple of our family were bemoaning the culture in which we live. Uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to do that. And then one of them reminded us, uh, read Rome before it was sacked. It was far worse than what we know here. And we haven't even gotten close to where they are. And that's part of the providence of God. 
I would have piped in if we had time, but these things kept flying up in the air. They big booms. I would have said, and you know, it's not as bad as you think because the percentage of people who are that way are being highly amplified by the culture and by the media. It's not that bad. It's bad, but it's not that bad. Why? Because God is at work. God is at work in all of us. And we exalt him in his glory. You are willing and able to give us all good and that thereby not we, but your holy name may be glorified. Jesus talked about prayer and he said, Whatever you, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You notice how that simply destroys health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? The answer to prayers is not so you get more or you become more popular. The answer to our prayers is that God would be glorified, that his kingdom would increase, that he would be praised. That is, and that also tells you for what do you pray? You pray for those things that will glorify him above all else. And not merely your own little needs. Now, having your needs met may glorify him. But that's not your primary emphasis. Lord, whatever I ask of you today, may it glorify you more than anything else. Because I want your name lifted high because of the answer. And then you get to the final word. What is the meaning of the word amen? Amen means say it very softly and low down so nobody hears you. No, no, no. What does amen mean? So shall it truly and surely be. For my prayer is much more certainly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of him. Even more than our passion for what, we're, for what we are praying. Amen says it is even more passionate by God. He wants it even more than we want it. And that's what it is. That's why it's amen. And you don't, amen. You go, amen. Say it with authority. Say it with power. Shout it out. Got to have an amen corner like back there. Amen. Because all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that gives us even more confidence as we are sitting in here. Amen. Just think about that. Think about it for a minute. There you are, in a chair, by a table, under a tree, wherever you are praying. At least I don't think you do it under a tree in the middle of winter, but in summer you can do that. God wants to answer your prayer more than you want to pray. And God will answer your prayer. There is no doubt about it. You say, I don't think he's hearing me. Oh, he hears you very well. You may, he may not like what you're saying, but he hears you very well. What do you mean, can you have the butter? I heard you. I don't like it. I heard you. He knows you very well, he, and he hears you very well. And he says, I'll answer that prayer in a way that will glorify me. And you better know I'm going to do it. I don't renege on my promises. I can do what I want to do. And I will do with your prayers what I need to do in order for them to be answered. You think there's a brass ceiling? Nah, there's no one. That's just in your mind. You think he didn't hear? Yeah, he hears everything. Uh, that's the bad part. He hears everything. He knows everything. And he knows the desires of your heart. He knows exactly what has to be done. And he has called you to be a part of it.
And when you say amen, you are giving agreement to it. That brings us back to the beginning of the catechism. We go full circle. For the first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. As we've gone through this catechism, that has been the goal of the catechism. That's been the goal of what we've talked about. That's the goal of the Lord's Prayer. That you will end up to know how absolutely certain you are of God's love, His care, and especially His answer to your prayers. Therefore, in similar vein to what uh, Paul wrote the end of the third chapter, now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond everything I ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forever. And all of God's people said. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for men of old who wrote with great wisdom and insight from your word. Thank you for a written revelation that provides for us all that we need. Thank you that you want to hear us and be with us and be present with us. Thank you for our time together. And it's my prayer that you would take all that we have talked about that is from you and from your word. You would instill it within our hearts and our minds. It will come back to us when we need it the most. And you will use it in order to proclaim your name to us and to one another and to a world. And that, Father, you would be glorified through all that we have done. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.